and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, holding all the cards. Yes, you are, sir. And uh, we are continuing our celebration of 2012's James Bond film, Skyfall, with a very special guest. Yes, we are talking to Nicholas Woodison, an actor who, of course, played Dr. Hall in Skyfall, but also has a very distinguished career on stage, as well as a pretty impressive spy movie resume to his name. Yeah, and we're going to chronicle all of that and much more in the interview. So I think without further ado, Cam, roll it. And joining us now on the show, star of stage and screen and this week's film, Skyfall, is Mr. Nicholas Woodison. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Hello, I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? Uh, wonderful. All the better for having you here on the show. Uh, Thank you. It's, it's not very often we have an actor join us who has such a spy resume. Mm-hmm. I mean quite the accomplished espionage actor it hadn't occurred to me before but there you go <laughs> yeah, by the end of this interview you'll be like wow i i actually do like spy films <laughs> yes yes i actually am a spy yes <laughs> <laughs> um well but, yeah we'll, we'll get your martini over to you in a tuxedo in the post but right. uh i think before we get to sort of all of the films acting as a whole what, what what interested you in getting into acting in the first place um, I was um, lived born abroad and lived abroad, and my parents sent me, as so many others before me, to boarding school, uh, in back in England, which I didn't really know, which I didn't like really, and I started acting at school really to, because um, it seemed uh, a safer and more friendly space than actually real life, and I was I had I was under the um, mistaken impression it was an easy life, and much easier <laughs> than real work. Do you remember like the first, you know, production you worked on or something where you thought, oh, like this is for me. This is what I want to do for the long term. Uh, um, yes, I played a, a street Arab uh, the age of about eight at um, wow. boarding school. And I can't even remember what the play was. But that was it. That was it. I thought, well, this is this will be all right. Yeah, <laughs> this will do. This will do. And there we go. Yeah, so, and then going back to that time when you were in boarding school and you're getting started in acting, obviously, I assume you were watching films around that time. What sort of films were you drawn to? Um, well, this is a long time ago. Mm. So where we lived abroad, um, I think the first film I remember seeing was Gigi. Oh. And then My Fair, uh, did we see My Fair? No, Gigi, I think it was the first. Oh, no, that's, I, I tell a lie. The first film I remember seeing, which I didn't really understand, but I knew I kind of liked uh, as I, I seem to have an affinity, even at the age of six or seven or eight, for a slightly satirical American product. Uh, there used to be a, um, a um, this is a long way of saying the first film I remember seeing was The Trouble with Harry, which is uh, a, a Hitchcock comedy. Yeah, and as much as anything isn't actually a, a full-out comedy. And I remember the, the the very bright colors of New England, which I later saw in person and realized they that that wasn't Technicolor. That was actually how they really were. But all I remember is is the feet of the dead body kept appearing in odd moments, and people were very deadpan of what they were going to do about this dead body and and who who was responsible for it. And I kind of liked that very much even though i didn't really understand what they were talking about because i was about i don't know very young at the time and then the, the one after that i remember as i say was gigi saying that 
but that wasn't in um, um, the States or in England. That was uh, in the Middle East when I was abroad. And were spy films, you know, a big thing for you growing up or something you'd pay attention to at all? Yeah. Well, yeah, um, only because of moving about. I think the first ones I saw were things like, were, were again, Hitchcock's, things mm. like uh, Notorious. And um, uh, what's that one with Gregory Peck where they think he's killed somebody and, and it's all set in a doctor's sanitarium with Ingrid Bergman? Anyway. Spellbound? That's the one, Spellbound, yes. Um, I remember seeing that and, and I kind of liked those, yes. Uh, and then there was, of course, Harry Lyme, the third man. Mm-hmm which is an all-time favourite of thousands of people. So, um, And I kind of remember those two, yes, actually, those three, Spellbound and uh, The Third Man and Notorious. Notorious is one of my personal favourites. It's, it's yeah. one I always reach for. It's a wonderfully crafted spy film. It doesn't get as much love as some of uh, Hitchcock's other films. I, yeah, I don't know why. It, may, um, it also stars Claude Rains, who... Um, um, <laughs> Gilgood once uh, was asked uh, because Rain started off in the theatre in England and John Gilgood was asked whatever happened to Claude Rains he said, oh I think he failed and went to America <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he landed on his feet luckily yeah yeah, yeah just, just about now sort of a whiplash from Alfred Hitchcock is James Bond Really, mm-hmm. I, I think what we'll do is because we're talking about Skyfall this week, we'll yeah. we'll jump ahead of time when it comes to your spy filmography, and go to Skyfall. James Bond, massive influence, and Skyfall is still the biggest box office a James Bond film has ever had. Yes, uh, I noticed you didn't mention James Bond in sort of your previous espionage films, but were you aware of the Bond phenomena by this point? Oh yeah, um, I remember seeing uh, Doctor No. Actually, the first one I saw was um, uh, From Russia with Love. Mm. And and Goldfinger was kind of the 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 absolutely iconic gold standard Bond of the time of the age. That was kind of set set the set the standard and tone for for James Bond until um well until Daniel Craig came along, I think, as far as I'm concerned. So how did the offer to appear in Skyfall come along to you? Well, I had done a couple of plays that Sam Mendes directed a mm-hmm. um, long time ago. And I went to see a production of his at the Old Vic of Richard III. Uh, and I went along the last night and I was backstage talking to a couple of the actors that I knew and I met, met Sam again and talked to him. And I think he must have remembered because of, of a short while later, he asked me if I wanted to do this in, in Skyfall. And then rang up and then got in touch a few days later and said, uh, could you grow a, a goatee? <laughs> well, at least they give you a nice bit of lead in time there to get the goatee together. Yes, yes. Um, and what was the character that was pitched to you? Obviously, we got to see Dr. Hall in, in the finished film, but did it ever change from what was pitched to you? No, um, it was what it was. And um, I sort of um, took a line on what it was, which she liked. And when you have a character like this, do they give you any sort of sense of, you know, backstory, credentials, anything like that to work with just as an actor? I don't know. I can't speak for the others. But in this case, um, I, I, I I took the goatee as a sort of um, picture of what of the profile of the man 
which is, um, as a rather devious man, uh, claiming to be a very pleasant man. I, I, I got the sense you were perfectly charming in real life outside of your uh, psychiatry job. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought you were the sort of guy who gets ice cream for kids, not devious. Um, I don't think he'd give them to kids, not unless he was um, carefully watched by other people. <laughs> well, he does work for the spy services, to be fair. Yes, I mean, I, I think I tried to find something that was, you know, perfectly accessible and nice, but actually was not particularly nice. I'm not necessarily nasty, but um, perhaps disarmingly, apparently simple. Mm. Okay. And when it comes to putting the scene together, it's you and Daniel Craig locked in a room with a camera, more or less. Did you do any sort of work with Daniel to help put that scene together? Or was that you and Sam collaborating on that? No, we did a, we did a, a sort of a read through and a work through of it um, a few days beforehand, before we actually did the scene which was about half a day's work in um this in the, their built set studio mm -hmm. um literally up in an office on the side with um m and everybody else watching and um there was a slight glitch in that because it was actually on in the studio um stage it wasn't a sound stage so at that time in the morning there was a truck that kept appearing, kept noisily making itself heard outside the um, studio, which uh, Daniel quite understandably took some exception to. You know, all this money, and the least you could, <laughs> the least you could do, is find a sound, a soundproof stage for the day. But there you go; these things happen all the time. So, how long did it take to shoot your scene? About half a day. Just half a day. Okay. Yes. And. What was it like just kind of like working through the scene with Daniel Craig? Because had you worked with him previously in theater or anything like that? No, I'd met him before mm -hmm. um, okay, um, off, on, on odd occasions, years before. Um, no, it was just um, Daniel Craig and Sam and me and the viewers viewing when they were being viewed, when they were being seen. Right. Well, that was something I had a question lined up slightly later on. But were you know, Ray Fiennes and Dame Judi Dench on the other side of the actual room whilst you were filming the scene? Were they there with you when that was being shot? Or was that just two things spliced together? Um, no, they weren't spliced together because the, um, the way it works is that um, if you don't have to be there because there are close-ups on the two people, then nobody's there. Mm. And I, I wasn't kind of taking note of when they were there and when they weren't. But obviously, if you're shooting from this side and they're up there, they'll be there. Mm. they'll be on camera but if you're just doing close-ups there's no point in their being there um I, I know method is important but that's that would be going a little far <laughs> and you're doing this word association with bond and you pull up the word skyfall did you yes. have any sense of what that word meant within the context of the story when you were playing that scene oh yes yeah okay because we did an entire read through of the script as well um, which I was given the dubious honor of reading all the stage directions. Oh, so I kind of made it a little sort of narrative of my own. I'm happy to sell them as little little podcasts of just the stage directions. <laughs> right. Okay. S sign us up. Sign us up for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure because so often now when we talk to actors who are working on projects that are hugely awaited, um, sure. there's so many NDAs, and often they don't have a finished script. So that's really interesting to hear. You are actually presented with the full script. 
Well, because Bond's a different world. I mean, I think what's amazing about this Skyfall and Casino Royale before it um, is that was it, yes, it was the and there was Casino. There was Quantum of Solace, then Skyfall. I can't remember the order now. Um, about the transition from, I mean, I don't want to disparage any of the other Bonds, but it seems to me that from Sean Connery to this was is this is a kind of reboot of the entire ethic of it. Mm-hmm. And um, the kind of world that was originally created is not a world of of cinema verite improvisations and things like that. So you're going to know the end of the story. And particularly in this case, obviously, Dr. Hall is going to know that Skyfall is a trigger word. So he's going to know everything that it, and I knew exactly what it meant because it was designed as part of a psychological test to test what 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 state of mind he was in and it had the effect of triggering something in him and as you as you remember from the film he's actually not fit to go back to work but nevertheless he's sent back before he's fully fit and that's one of the moments which kind of throws up mm, don't think he's quite there yet because he's, his response is done I always um, I always had a funny reaction to that response because when I think I was the first watching the film, and I think it also featured in the trailers, which I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. I, when he says done, I, I thought that was like, um, you know, when you get like sleeper agents and then they are awakened by a word. Like hearing yes. Skyfall, I always say that it was like done, like awaken, I must go do a mission that's been programmed. Obviously, it meant more to Bond, but like it, that's how I read it at the time. Yeah. No, it's not the British done and dusted. It's the American I'm done here. Yeah. Hmm. I, speaking of words you mentioned in that word association, I, I I wonder if you had the same reaction to me, although I doubt it because I have a poor grasp of the English language. When you <laughs> said the word, uh, when so when Daniel Craig said the word provocatrix, I immediately had to go and look that word up because I thought it was entirely made up. Right. Yeah, it was more of just a comment, really. I I thought it was a completely made up word that he'd made up on the spot. But turns out it's a real word. Yes, it's not it's not greatly familiar to us, is it? But, <laughs> no, no it, it is a real word. Yes. No, strangely enough. And yeah, you know, speaking of of Daniel, and you mentioned uh, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, but I didn't actually ask you. You know, you mentioned the Sean Connerys, but what did you think of those first two Daniel Craig films before sort of Skyfall came along? What were your thoughts on them? Well, uh, I I loved um, I loved Casino Royale. I mean, I, I thought this is this is a completely reimagining of the entire franchise and i thought it was great because it i mean the whole point about the original bonds was um it's all it i think yet again it was john gilgood i think once said style is knowing what kind of play you're in and so style in terms of films is knowing what kind of genre you're in mm-hmm. and if you wanted to for me the if if James Bond is one kind of genre of spy film, one kind of genre of personality, persona, for me, my favourite is always, my personal favourite, so I probably drew on this a bit for Dr. Hall, is Smiley in the original um, Locarian movies. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is, is the other icon of a kind of spy who actually trades off being invisible, being very ordinary you know going into the background and of course james bond is every you know is is always absolutely there's no he never goes around trying to ghost into a country he always arrives in a first class seat in the plane walks out everybody knows who he is which is uh, quite unlike real life i hope 
um, so the, the whole genre originally set up, I mean, anybody in real life would be dead if they went through the kind of sex life um, and adventures that Bond goes through in one movie. They wouldn't survive. So we have here a genre. And I thought they'd, it was wonderfully reinvented, re revitalized with, with Daniel in um, Casino Royale. And, and how was Daniel in, in terms of the process of making the film? Because we've had actors who've been on both Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace and sort of charted his journey as an actor growing into that role. So this is his yes. third film now. How did you yes. feel he was sort of taking the pressure of that? It's very difficult to tell in a half, half, half a day. Mm. But it seemed to me he was, it was, he was well into it. You know, he was taking the pressure very well, thank you. But he, de he dealt with the van outside, so we can, we can at least yes. uh, be happy with that. Yes, he, uh, he had words, but um, <laughs> perfectly, perfectly understandable, in my opinion. And it was sort of in keeping with the scene, because I didn't say anything, looked pleasant and let him sound off, which is kind of what the scene's about. Definitely. And was there any more to the scene that we didn't see, anything that was cut, or is it entirely as you recall filming it? As I remember, it was a bit longer, mm. but I, I don't remember it that well. Okay, was it just more word associations or? Yes, I think so. Fair enough. But it's um, a long time. Yeah. Since I saw it. And um, let's see, I saw the film, uh, the, pre uh, the premiere, which would have been, what, about 18 months later. I can't remember, 15 months later. Not even that much, actually. A few months. I'm, I'm lying. I tell a lie. Uh, a few months later. But I remember it, it seemed longer. And it was cut short, but Sam's sense of everything is perfect. So, no, they they, they really nailed that film. It's definitely one of my favorite Bond films, yeah. and still one I reach yeah. for. Yeah. And I mentioned about the trailer earlier when we were talking. Were you aware that your your scene with Daniel would be so pivotal to the marketing of this film? Because it literally your back and forth is part of the trailer. Every trailer you're in. No, not at all. No idea until they appeared. A, a pleasant surprise for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because because it's the word that's the that's being marketed, the trigger word, Skyfall. You mentioned sort of going to the premiere and, and watching the film, but what do you think about the film's legacy now? Do you do you ever get it brought back up to you? Obviously, we're talking about it now, but is it a film that gets referenced to you quite often? Um, only the, every time I do a play, people always turn up at the stage door with pictures of Doctor Who. Oh, nice. Um, which is fine, but it's like, did you, did you enjoy the play? What play? Could you sign this piece? Yeah. Uh, remember next time. Next time I go and stand outside to bring a picture of uh, maybe a few from Russia House, and then we'll, yes. we'll have a different conversation. Yes. <laughs> and when you make a Bond film, you kind of know. I would assume going in, this movie is going to be probably pretty successful because Bond has a pretty good track record in that regard. But were you surprised yes. at just how big Skyfall was? Funny you should say that. Um, I didn't think about it, and it didn't surprise me at all because mm. I'd done a couple of plays with Sam Mendes, and uh, I think he's a, a really—it's a strange thing to say—but I think he's a, a better, even better filmmaker than he is a. a stage director which is sort of saying something there is there's something um, he's very very good at what he does and i thought it was um i mean as they say stroke of genius really a stroke, to get um somebody like sam 
that you wouldn't think of as a, as a typical Bond director. So he came to the franchise with a legacy because um, he, I, I think he knew Daniel from, and he'd, he, uh, he'd, he'd known, he had yeah, directed Rafe um, at, at, at the RSC. And so he knew most of the actors that they got playing those parts. Mm. So the, there was a wonderful wedding of a particular kind of theatrical background with the franchise. And I always really appreciate with Sam uh, Mendes that like, he's someone who seems to care about every scene. And there are so many movies, see, even just like an exposition scene where you can kind of sense they kind of just toss them off in a different movie. Whereas like Sam Mendes, it feels like every scene he cares genuinely about the psychological motivation of the characters, how it's furthering the story. So I think that really is alive and well in Skyfall and particularly your scene. Yes, I think it's true because um, plays, you can't do that. Mm. You can't have plays that kind of go... Let's take them from, let's take Kojak from this scene here, put him in a car, take him along there so he gets out of the car. You can't do that in plays. You have to, every, particularly at the beginning of an exposition of a good play is an extraordinary thing because you're telling the audience the story, you're building a world for the audience, but if it's well done, it doesn't ever sound like exposition. Mm-hmm. It always sounds like you ne- you never have those scenes in a play that you always see on detective proced- uh, detective series where two people stand on the steps <laughs> and tell each other things that they know perfectly well. Right. But they're for the sake of the audience. And uh, with good actors, they dress it like it actually seemed probable and realistic that they talk to each other. But you don't have that in plays. And so when you've got a director like Sam with Sam's legacy in the theatre, as an artistic director of some of, of immense reputation, as well as a director of a many director of many plays, um, he's not going to ever do that with a, with a film. Every single film, every single take, every single moment is going to be treated uh, as very important part of the of the of the dramatic movement of the of the piece. And I, I remember when we had uh, Ben Power on the show, who worked with Sam on a, a few things, including the Layman trilogy, which they won some awards for recently. Yes. Um, and he was he was working on Spectre, the sec the follow up film to this at the time, and it it took every waking minute of Sam's day, apart from working with Ben, was on Spectre. It consumed him, so yeah. you can see how how much he cared about the process. Well, most of the very successful film directors are obsessively like that because that's what makes them very good. True. I mean, I mean, Hitchcock's interesting. Like, let's go back to the to the the man there, because as you you know. Um, he was ex- so extraordinarily organized that all that was done before he ever got near the film. Mm-hmm. He planned every single shot before he went on to a, a, a film set. Um, so the obsession was all there, but just in a different form. But the filmmaking has changed. I mean, um, since we're on this, can we just digress on this? Because I think it's interesting and important. Please um, go for it. I was in a film called Heaven's Gate yeah. years ago, which was um, one of those notorious big Titanic-like failures. And one of the reasons why it was a failure was because Michael Cimino uh, shot over 1.2 million feet of film. I've got a picture somewhere of a million feet of film. That's great. <laughs> um, 
And it took him over a year to cut it. And when the film was released, which is now the French particularly said, it's a free or flawed masterpiece. No, it's a really a masterpiece. Even it was it bombed. And you watching it again, it's pretty obvious to me that every single scene is too long. Right. So no matter how he cut it, he hadn't spent enough time actually cutting it. And the the editor on that was a man called Tom Rolfe. And they did not get on. Uh, Michael didn't get on with many people. And Tom was one of them. And then I was in a film called Pelican Brief, directed by Alan Pakula, and Tom Rolfe was the editor on that. And Tom took me downstairs to show me, to remind me that if you take a piece of film in the old days and you put it into that thing there and you cut it, once you've cut it, that's it. Mm-hmm. And which is why it took so long to cut Heaven's Gate. But he was working on a new process where you do everything on something called the computer. You don't touch the film. You can do this and you can take the sound from this. You can take the take sound from this take here and put it onto the long shot there. And, and then you can play all kinds of games and you without even touching the film. So you can cut everything in the computer. And it was I can't even remember the name of the of the of the. Um, of the software now, but it was later it was british and it was invented because of the pressure of the tax laws whereby you could only claim money back for what you spent on a film if you actually produced it and and launched it in a particular time so the old ways of doing things you couldn't get your money back here because it had taken you a year and a half to cut the film you couldn't claim your money and so on so this was in a way pressured by economics and somebody came up with a way of cutting it in the in, in the computer in, 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 without ever touching the film, which meant that Pakula didn't have to finish the film. So he could actually make things up as he went along, which he did. He didn't know how he's going to film, finish the film. Uh, my, my character ends up getting blown up by his own bomb. He didn't know how he was going to finish it, which in the old days would have been anathema. Mm-hmm. How can you ever walk onto a set with a, filming with celluloid without knowing how you're going to finish. But now suddenly you're in a different world. And I think the obsession you were talking about day and night is partly produced by that, is that now there are pressures by producers and outside forces that are actually not allowing you to start a film like that anymore and finish it the way you planned it. There are pressures to make changes, which um, technology has made possible. So, I mean, Tom Hooper is notoriously gets up at some ungodly hour in the morning and goes to bed at some ungodly hour at night because that's the only way you can produce stuff now. Well, I was gonna I was gonna pivot us over to Russia House, but I think the more important film to talk about, based off what we were just discussing there, is another one of the films that you were connected with that had a bad editing process, which is The Avengers. Right. We've had Jeremiah Chechik on the show talking right. all about the film. We've even had Don McPherson, who wrote the film, talking right. all about the Avengers. You know, we try our best to defend what the vision was of that film, and then what came out was a very different thing. But from your point of view, what was the experience like working on the Avengers? It was a bit strange, um, because I think I, I couldn't quite get hold of Jeremiah Chekchik's relationship 
to the subject matter because i think even with uh, for example with a new uh, with a film of um tinker taylor soldier spy with gary oldman and uh, toby jones and, and, and um, cumberbatch and so on there is a genuine love there even though it's a completely different sensibility to john le carre's mm -hmm. but with the avengers i didn't feel there was any kind of affinity i couldn't get what affinity he had with the original material and as uh it turns out that was true there was someone else originally connected that i think and then he came in later on if i believe that's yes. right yeah and he didn't i don't think he ever had a natural affinity to the world that he was creating so what came out was a curious kind of almost like a fan fiction version of the original and were you quite familiar with the original tv show at the time yeah oh yes one grew up with it with um patrick mcnee and um the various ladies from from, from honor blackman through diana rig and so on oh yeah and like so many British shows that are quite successful, there's a kind of um, tongue-in-cheek quality about them, with with the class and with the with the soigné, with the with the and all that, which goes along with the fact that um, there's not a great deal of money there, like the original Doctor Who's, right? For mm -hmm. example, so there's a kind of mental inventiveness. And a mental imagination that makes those things breathe and live and if you try and replace that with sheer technological wizardry you don't get anything because it isn't masters of the universe right it's the avengers well there's that old adage that i'm probably going to butcher but something like creativity thrives under stress or strain or something like that and that that really shows with those sort of 60s and 70s tv serials doctor who star trek anything like that yes. they all they all really thrived with almost no money whereas nowadays they seem to struggle to come up with anything creative yeah well doctor who being the exception might i say uh my 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 uh i'm, I'm mixed on doctor who nowadays i actually prefer some of the older stuff personally but uh I always go back to Tom Baker myself, but <laughs> it, it just, he was the classic. And I even have the scarf and wear it out frequently, but <laughs> uh, just uh, and so last question on the Avengers, obviously it was cut to ribbons, historically mm. famously cut to ribbons by yeah. sort of studio mandates. And there was a changeover with studio heads. It was really mistreated by Warner brothers at the time. Um, I think from what I've learned over the years, your, part was basically fully in the film but was there any more that you did that didn't make it that you're aware of i can't remember that's fair i don't I actually can't remember. are you surprised by what came out in the end or does what was sort of presented kind of make sense given the creative push behind it i, I guess i was disappointed but no not i'm not surprised right i actually did have a question just about the tone of the avengers material was very specific and do you think it's something that like a North American filmmaker would struggle just to capture? Yes, that's what I was trying to say, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, 
we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Now's the time to catch up on our February programming with reviews of Laura Croft Tomb Raider, Rio Bravo, and The Deadpool. Did Clint close out Dirty Harry in style? We'll tell you. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well... Peddling back a little bit, about uh, about eight years to 1990, we have the Russia House. Right. Another John Le Carre there. Uh, it's actually funny. We were we literally reviewed it the other day, and I wasn't aware you were in the film until a few scenes in. There you are handing over an audio book to Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, which is a wonderful little connection to, to today's interview. But how did you get connected with sort of Russia House? I just finished um, a long a long series of seasons with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm-hmm. And I came out of that and um, I was offered this job. I can't remember any more than that. And so I turned up on the set and um, the first AD, if you remember, my character was called Nicky Landau. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, there was a racing driver called Nicky Lauda. And um, I remember the first AD leading me through a crowd of people. Excuse me, Nicky Lauda coming through. Coming through, Nicky Lauder, <laughs> and uh, seeing the back of uh, Sean Connery's head as I walked past a makeup room, and that was my first day on the set. So, it's a, a good start, a good start, and then and then you're filming with Michelle Pfeiffer moments later, I imagine. Yes, yeah, and um, she had a, a dialect coach called Nick Tim Monick that I'd worked with many years previously in America, so that was nice to see. Her. And I would just like to know about working through a scene with Michelle Pfeiffer. This is just at that period where she is ready to explode as one of the big names, but just I'd like to know about yeah. just shooting that scene with her. Well, as most actors do, particularly if they're working with a dialect coach, she, um, I think she came on the set and said, um, I'm sorry, I had a lot of garlic yesterday. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I said, um, oh, yeah, what, what do you have? She said, well, I had a big salad with garlic and because I think I had a pecker on the cheek, so that was no. Uh, otherwise, she spent each moment between the takes with the dialect coach, because that's what you have to do if you're who some somebody like that working on set with um, a foreign accent, and it's not your. You haven't spent five months like some other actors do, learning to speak fluent Russian. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you get your time with a Russian accent, uh, which we'll talk about shortly in the, the Man Who Knew Too Little. But I had one question. It's more of an argument between Cam and I. And if you can't remember the film, that's fair enough in terms of right. the ins and outs. But with the Russian, the Russia house. Yes. Your your character is working for this, uh, you know, book company selling audio tapes overseas. Yeah. Now, to your mind, was that person also a spy working for the British government or were you more merely just a book salesman? Um, he was a. Um... As far as I can make, he was a part-time spy. I mean, he was a low-grade spy. Yes, okay. He was in touch with the British. He was. Um, he was definitely had links to British intelligence, which is why he immediately. Yeah, you know, that material was 
Otherwise, I don't think you would know what to do with the material. Right. You, you've made Cam a very happy man. You've yeah, made thank Cam you, very thank happy you. <laughs> because that. Well, um, when I was a very small boy, I, 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 was the, I did Russian O-level. Hmm. And um, part of that time was uh, I and a bunch of other uh, schoolboys went to Moscow and, as it was, Leningrad. Mm-hmm. And you got all you got all you got um instructions or what happens, what you do, and how people want to buy your sweaters off you and all that kind of stuff. And it's it was pretty obvious. You just realized that everybody was working for in some degree, everybody would be working for an intelligence service because that's the way life functioned. <coughs> Nobody would simply go anywhere without having some kind of relationship with an intelligence service. I don't mean that everybody was a spy. It's just that there would be, that if you were given something like that, as Nicky Landau is in the film, you would naturally know who to go to. And he, and he sorry, I'm remembering now, he actually tells her what to do. Yeah. You're going to do this, you're giving me the book. Because he realizes there's something going on. Exactly. I, I, it's, it's a shame I lost that argument, but I, I <laughs> learned it from the man himself, so I can't argue with the source. <laughs> Speaking of the source material, though, you mentioned Lakare when we were talking about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy earlier, but have you, had you read The Russia House when it came out? And what did you think of sort of the book's adaptation of the, uh, sort of the film's adaptation? I hadn't read it when it came out. I hadn't read it when it came out. It was uh, Tom Sp- Stoppard, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, Probably selfishly, I didn't take much notice of it past the first few scenes, because I went straight to New York to do some off, an off-Broadway play. So I just did the scene and um, tried to get a few days rest before I went to New York. And I would love to know with your character, Nikki, like, he is a very kind of like showy, really fun character. Like, you remember Nikki when the movie's over. Right. I'd like to know about playing someone who's kind of an eccentric character, who's a personality that pops, but having that kind of underlying element of this is someone who works in an espionage world and is passing information, where you're kind of playing those layers in a scene and trying to get across both the character who's memorable and kind of fun, but also someone who brings a certain seriousness actually to what this character's journey is going to be. I don't think it's two things. I think most people like Nikki, uh, it's it's one and the same world. Right. Um, I think that's what's so dismal about the current debate about refugees. Um, of course, most of the things that refugees say won't be entirely true because they wouldn't be alive if they told the truth. So you have to um, decide whether you're telling the tr- when somebody's telling the truth because for good motives or whether they're actually you know not to be trusted with anything to do with you let alone your life nikki's background is probably first generation um whatever he was was he polish i can't remember he's first generation middle european he's you know he's born on the east end and um he's not so far away from that world himself his parents would have been part of it anyway right and just uh, scooting forward a few years to 1997, you've got The Man Who Knew Too Little, uh, that Russian accent I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little bit about working on that production. Obviously, you've got a little bit of time with Bill Murray there. What was that one like? Well, I enjoyed working with Bill Murray very much. Um, it started out, so this is not me knowing, this is what I was told afterwards. 
the film started out as a sort of a British low budget light comedy. And I think they had somebody in mind that I won't mention because that might be true and it might not be true. And I've got into trouble before repeating rumors that are not true. <laughs> so I'll say that's as much I know. It was, it was intended to be a, a British light comedy. And somebody somewhere, a producer, I'm sure, got hold of it and said, uh, hey, we need to make this. We'll bring a big star in. And immediately the budget increased. And most of the budget, as is always happens, went to pay the star. Of course. And it was called um, Watch That Man originally. And um, I can't remember when they originally, when they ended up calling it A Man Who Knew Too Little. Um, I remember getting a lot of script pages, changes through the post, through the door, quite a lot, like whole new scripts. And John Amiel, who directed it, is, is a British originally, um, um, said at, at some stage that directing that film was like flying a four, 747 while trying to glue the wings back on. <laughs> Okay, right. Get, getting a sense of the production. Um, I enjoyed Bill Murray greatly. It was great fun. <laughs> and um, that's all there is to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to know, because you, you do share a number of scenes with Alfred Molina, just about yes. finding a dynamic with him, because he's, a, of course, a fantastic actor. Yes. Um, let's see, I've, I've met him a couple of times before. And I met him a couple of times since and um i just like like working with him a lot well you can tell the chemistry there between the two of you i mean obviously you mentioned having fun with bill murray but you can tell you two are having fun as well which is always nice to see in the film and i i'm just looking back at sort of the overall your your spy work so far in your career and it's it, yeah you've got comedies serious bond films serious lacari adaptations you're bouncing from because inside the spy world, there's all sorts of little mini genres, I would always like to think. Yes. But yeah. what is your favorite type of spy film to work on? Um, well, I think The Bond, actually. Mm. Yeah. And would you say that was your favorite of the films you've done in terms of spy movies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it was um, the work was very serious in the right kind of way. It was fun and tongue in cheek in the right kind of way. But um, it was remaking a franchise. It was developing uh the the genre in a different way and um those films are very well made and very seriously made nowadays and did you keep up with the next two films to see to the end of the daniel craig arc i haven't finished yet because i can't bear to see the last one i don't want to see the last one oh mm. i want to sort of um um but i've seen i saw Quantum of Solace came next. I can't remember. No, it was before Skyfall, wasn't it? Yeah, it went um, Casino, Quantum, Skyfall, Spectre, and then No Time to Die. Yes, I've seen Spectre, of course, and uh, I like that a lot. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. And uh, I haven't seen No Time to Die, but I suppose I will one day. <laughs> you, before the next one happens, I imagine you'll probably need to pop it in and, and have a watch. Right. Um. Well, then, I suppose, sort of slowly wrapping us up, you mentioned Skyfall being your maybe favourite of the spy films you looked at, but what, which one sort of challenged you the most as an actor, do you think? Um, the Man Who Knew Too Little, because it was so chaotic. Mm. That's fair. And 
looking at sort of your wider filmography, maybe away from spy films, just as everything you've worked on, one thing we like to ask actors when they've been on the show, what's something that you're really proud of that you've worked on that maybe didn't get the love of something like Skyfall, for instance? I suppose Heaven's Gate, because um, it was the first film I ever did. And it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, just extraordinary. <laughs> and I was there in Montana for five and a half months, which was longer than anybody else on the set. And funnily enough, um, and it was a, a blast. Although it was, and it was also very, very strange because it was a bit like being in the retreat from Moscow. You know, everything's like the Grand Armée marching down week after week. And then you sort of realize that something wasn't really working because he originally wanted to um, film into the late winter. Um, and um, eventually the producers caught up with him and said, you can't do that. You've got to stop by this. So instead of working that way, he started to work that way, getting up at the crack of dawn and ending at the you know, night and changing all the, I, th I think because he thought himself as a bit of a David Lean, wanted to finish like Dr. Zhivago in the snow. So then he had to change it to all that kind of thing. Um, it was just um, um, a bizarre, wonderful, one of those extraordinary adventures that um, um, you're, either, you're a kind of lucky to be a part of as long as you don't get hurt. <laughs> Has it been somewhat gratifying to see that Heaven's Gate really has been reappraised a lot over the years where now I see it regularly regarded as a really fantastic film. Yes, it's fun. Um, I st still think I was right that it's actually, if he'd taken another 20 minutes out of it, it would be a really good film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it has to, the thing has to do with um, the technology of the time. Yeah. Um, and there were an extraordinary amount of, actors who became extraordinarily successful in it later on. And we briefly spoke about this off air before we hit record, but what is it you're working on at the moment, Nicholas, anything you can share with us? Uh, I'm not working on anything at the moment that I can share with you. <laughs> Highly secretive there. I like yeah. it. I like that answer. I like that answer. Uh, well, okay. The last question we have for you before we let you go, and this question has been asked to literally every single person we've had on the show. You may have already telegraphed it earlier, but we'll see. Nicholas Woodison, what is your favourite spy movie of all time? Do you know, I don't know. I suppose I'd have to say, say Skyfall, actually. I, I'll allow it this time. Usually I'd say that's <laughs> if you're in it, that's cheating. Oh, I see. All right. I'll take that back. Um, could it be a television series? Sure. Absolutely. All right. Um, um, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Right. The original. Mm. Where do you stand in comparison to the TV show versus the movie? It's a different thing. It's a different animal. Um, that's the best way I can do But Because the original was, um, it so accurately captured a, a world of, of England at the time. Um, and it's so skillfully sort of characterized. And I think, it, um, I mean, I, um, the spy who came in from the cold is, you know, it's it's, it's part of that genre, but I, for some reason, I don't like it. it it's uh, I find it's really depressing because it is. Mm. And take it to say, a soldier spy manages to be deeply serious and and pessimistic, but at the same time doesn't depress me in the same way. Um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure why. And um, but it's so totally different from the film. It is a different thing, and, and it's an interesting question because it isn't like. 
Sean Connery's Bond and Daniel Craig's Bond, which has a deep relationship one with the other. There's, there's a kind of mutual support going on there between the genres. I think that the there's a real difference between Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the TV series and the book. And to me, the TV series is, is actually very close to the book in, 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 in sensibility. And everything I've heard Le Carre say kind of supports that view. Um, and the film is a different animal. It's, it's, it's wonderful as to what it is, but it is a different animal. It's as different from the original, I think, as Anthony Burgess's book of... Um, um, Clockwork Orange? Thank you. And yeah. the film. Yeah. Yeah, they are definitely two very different things for sure. Yeah. We, I mean, we've been looking at spy films for close to three years at this point, and it's rare to find a good adaptation that stays close to the book. It's, it's usually they, they stray away completely or slightly. There's not been many that have stuck to it, and the ones that do are usually successful. But I tend to find actually TV is better at adapting spy novels. That's probably true. Yes, this gives it more room to breathe. Yes. Um, anyway, I, I think that's my favourite, and um, then there's. Close behind, I think, the third man. Yeah. And, and I was being a bit cheeky with saying you can't have Skyfall because it's a great film. So, uh, you know, <laughs> of the top three you've got there, I can't complain with any of them. <laughs> uh, well, Nicholas, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You are the man that helped James Bond save the world. Even though you didn't recommend he went out there, you still did do the interview with him. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll give you that anyway. But it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, sir. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. There you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Nicholas Wooderson. I want to thank Nicholas again for taking the time to speak with us all about Skyfall and much, much more. Cam, what did you think? I thought this was actually a really good follow-up to kind of what we did when we talked to Rufus Wright about uh, his work in Quantum of Solace, playing the Treasury agent, and also to Joseph Milson, who, of course, had a pretty memorable part as Carter in Casino Royale. I like that we've kind of charted over the course of these Daniel Craig films, these actors who kind of inject real character work in memorable small parts. And I think Nicholas had a lot to say about his performance here. And it's a pretty memorable character, as you said, uh, was pretty much the center of all the marketing. Absolutely. And I can't promise that we will keep this up with the subsequent Daniel Craig films. I'll, I'll surely try. But let's relish in what we have had. And yeah, in terms of Nicholas, I, I, it's one of those scenes that when people think about Skyfall, that literally will always pop up in their head. There's a couple of like really good looking scenes like the Shanghai stuff or Macau. But when it comes to actually acting, this is one of the scenes where people always reference. Oh, that's the one with the interrogation, the one where they do the whole like name recognition thing. So it's testament to what an actor can do with a short amount of time in a film. Definitely. And he mentioned in the interview that there was other cards and other responses. I would love to know what those were. I think they could have been some really amazing stuff there. Can you imagine it was like something on the lines of going through his past conquests that he caused to be killed or something like that? Or, like... <laughs> or it's even just like uh, Le Chiffre. Ugh. <laughs> Do you know, so I could see because that because you know Skyfall was a bit of an anniversary of the fifty years of of uh, James Bond in a way. Can you imagine if they said something like Tracy? 
and he just like crumbles and it i mean the continuity makes zero sense if that happens but just for a second imagine how interesting that would have been and how many uh discussions bond fans would have had from that he holds up a card brad whitaker he's like who (laughs) (laughs) that's one for the uh bond diehards out there (laughs) yeah that's uh very true very true sheriff jw pepper He just, and, then, and then Daniel Craig just pulls out a slide whistle from under the table and it's like, whoop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's interesting to find out the connective tissue that these actors have to the film because I would have assumed that Nicholas had to sort of audition for the role, mm-hmm. but it all sort of stemmed from a backstage meeting with Sam Mendes, who it turns out he had worked for before on stage a number of times. So there was a nice connective tissue there. And, and as we sort of spoke about a little bit in the review, Sam is very passionate about his time in the Bond films. You know, Ben Power also told us the same story back when we were talking about Munich, the edge of war, and how Sam was so invested in creating the Bond films. And it's just fun to see how the sort of connected tissue came together to bringing him into the film and inevitably making a, an iconic scene from what was just a chance meeting behind the scenes of a production. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Was there any stories you had in particular about Skyfall that jumped out to you? It's funny you should mention that, Cam, because I was actually quite smitten with his story about Daniel Craig taking care of the lorry driver outside. Now, Nicholas didn't share us any particular details on how Daniel Craig sorted the lorry driver out. One can imagine there was a wee bit of shouting, uh, <laughs> but you know, Daniel Craig is number one on the call sheet. It is kind of his responsibility, apart from him and the director, to sort of take care of these things. Oh, for sure. Uh, I, and I appreciate the fact that Daniel stepped up instead of just being one of those actors that just goes, well guess the director will sort that mm-hmm. oh yeah which just goes to show daniel's passion about bond a thing that often gets overlooked by all these bond fans online that's just like throwing shots at him mm-hmm. one of the things i thought was really interesting was talking to him about whether he knew the meaning of the word skyfall because you talk to most actors as i said in the interview you talk to most actors who worked on say like a marvel film a dc film about the overall story they're like i just saw my pages like i really didn't have a sense of how this all fit together and and let's be honest uh, an actor we're going to talk about in a minute michelle pfeiffer she doesn't know anything about what the quantum realm is i don't either and i saw the movie <laughs> i i'm actually refusing to go and see ant-man i've just i think i'm done yeah. with marvel unless it's a really really big 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 film and ant-man is classically small so, yeah, I, I appreciate that uh, Sam involved the actors and sort of letting them be part of the whole story. And, you know, Nicholas shared with us that at the table read, which they do for most of these films, he was also given the job of doing all the stage directions. So he was thoroughly involved with the production from the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which you you like to hear because I think it speaks to kind of the overall quality of the movie. Because, as we talked about also in the interview, just about how Sam Mendes looks at every scene as mattering which is something that there are so many movies. I mean, I wasn't going to name names in the interview and I'm probably still not going to, but like there are so many blockbusters where there's scenes where you're like, oh, they didn't care. They were just like, get to the next plot point. That's all that this scene is here for. I am Taika Waititi. Oh, in Love and Thunder? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair one, yeah. I mean, I would say there's a lot of Marvel movies that do it pretty much. I mean, I wasn't just going to fire at Marvel, but that's a very recent mm-hmm. example in my mind of that exact phenomena. But it's interesting as well, and sort of maybe segueing off of James Bond and into Nicholas's sort of wider spy world, 
Nicholas then took us on an adventure about working with other directors and how they performed in spy movies and non-spy movies he worked on. He spoke to us about the director of uh, Heaven's Gate and the editor of Heaven's Gate and how the sort of they didn't get on particularly well. But given a different director um, with the Pelican Brief, a completely different result. So it, it, the it's good to see that the the people with the reins in Bond films genuinely care what they're doing. Yeah, and it's interesting also that he brought up the Pelican Brief because uh, while it's sort of spy cred is uh, it's a little loose, that movie is very relevant to us because it's directed by Alan J. Pakula, who also directed The Parallax View, which was a movie that we really had a lot of time for. So just to hear those sorts of insider stories is just always fascinating to me. Absolutely, and it, 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 we talked a little bit about his extensive spy credentials, but there are going to be few interviews with people who have sort of walked this line of so many different films, and we spoke to him about this in the interview, different types of spy movies. You've got The Avengers, uh, sort of a comedy action film, The Man Who Knew Too Little, full-on comedy spy film, The Russia House, pretty much a straight spy film. There's a couple of moments of light comedy, but it's a pretty straight thriller i would say yeah i think that's fair to say and i i think you know not to give anything too much away but the russia house may be on our horizon sooner than later well i kind of gave it away in the interview too to be fair that's also true yes so we are actually terrible spies in fact uh nicholas was a far better spy than we were at keeping you know his lips sealed well let's be fair nicholas has been pretending to be a spy since the 1990s so he's got way more practice than we do also true yes but yeah, speaking of the Russia House, and also interesting as well that this is a man who's worked with at least two Bonds. I should go through the rest of his filmography and figure out if he's worked with any more. But that's another interesting thing that few have done. It is, yeah. And I mean, his scene is primarily with Michelle Pfeiffer, but it was just interesting to hear him talk about seeing Connery on set. Uh, and just that movie, that scene you know, that we are talking about in Russia House, it's early in the film, but it really does stick with you. And it's another, you know, just an indication of like a scene that mattered. Clearly they wanted that moment to actually have an impact on the audience. And I think whether it's the direction or the two performances going on, or even just like, and I didn't mention this in the interview, the wardrobe going on. Nicholas's wardrobe in that scene is amazing. And it all just kind of sticks with you. Yeah, I see you've turned up in his suit today. I think it was a bit much. I have, yes, yes. Yeah. But speaking of ridiculous... We also spoke about The Avengers, mm. uh, a troubled production through and through. And interesting to hear sort of a contrasting opinion on yeah. the film from our other two interviews on The Avengers. This, I guess, is our third one now that we have given the most amount of coverage The Avengers has ever gotten. I guess until Ray Fiennes joins us next week. Right, Scott? Of course, of course, of course. Uh, Uma Thurman, will you please check your inbox? <laughs> But we are not talking to them at all about any of the things they are known for, whether it is, you know, uh, the latest Bond films or Pulp Fiction. We're only going to talk about the Avengers. <laughs> That's very us, to be fair. <laughs> it is. That's very much on brand. But yeah, interesting to hear a contrasting opinion because Nicholas didn't seem to think that it was directed by the right person from the start, which is entirely fair. And I think that would resonate with a lot of Avengers fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that was a definitely a good point. And that's why I kind of just wanted a confirmation on that one when I brought up just having it directed by someone who's North American. You can kind of 
copy the sensibilities, but do you genuinely understand them? See, I, I, I didn't sort of bite back on that, but I will now. I don't think it has anything to do with nationality particularly. I think it has to do with connection to the source material because I'm British, but I think I could write a very good episode of Star Trek if I was a writer. Well, the jury's out on that one. <laughs> I don't claim to be a writer, but you know what I mean? Like it's a very American show when sure. you boil it down. The wagon trail to the stars. Sure. Like it's it's that's not a, a a British trope. We didn't do wagon trains or whatever that sort of thing is. We we didn't do that. So I, but I'm so into that world throughout my whole life. I think I know enough about it to give you at least give good notes on what makes a good Star Trek story. And I would wager that whilst Jeremiah had seen a few episodes of The Avengers, and I think he did tell us that he had too. Yeah. He maybe just wasn't as immersed as someone who could be the right fit for it. But then again, I will also contrast that with a thing we've heard many times in interviews and we've said in reviews, sometimes you need an outsider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, and you also got to look at Don McPherson, who wrote the film. He was a massive fan of The Avengers and he's British. Yeah. So jury's out on the Avengers. We'll never get the definitive answer on that, but I'm glad we keep searching nonetheless. The search will go on. Uh, I'm sure that before this podcast ends, we will have other people associated with the Avengers. <laughs> yes, we're still waiting for that phone call for Fiona Shaw. Hopefully she gets back to us sometime soon. That's right. We need father on the show. Father knows best. <laughs> father knows best. <laughs> and just to sort of wrap us up, as I mentioned, there's not going to be many people who have done these many spy films in their filmography and and and, and nicholas is still acting he could well be doing more spy films in the future but it's also interesting that he contrasted his favorite and perhaps the hardest films to work on citing skyfall as his favorite spy film to work on i can definitely understand why sort of collaborating with sam mendes once again but you know we didn't really mention it too much because we haven't really spoken about it on the show but the man who knew too little he called out as his hardest film to work on in terms of spy films mm -hmm. purely just because of the uh, trouble with the production yeah and that's a movie i have not seen so i'm genuinely interested in seeing it later down the road and covering it on the show i just went through mostly and watched clips of it to see his scenes for the interview but uh yeah i'm genuinely curious because i do remember when that movie came out uh it was not received well at least on these shores well i've never seen it either so i can't really speak to that end but we will explore the film somewhere down the road and we can always point back to this interview as kind of a reference point which i think is quite nice we've done it a couple of times and had people that have gone on to be on films that we've spoken about i quite like that connective tissue but all in all i think this was a another really great interview with another fantastic guest so I, i'm glad we could do it for sure this was a lot of fun and again it's always great to talk to these character actors who bring these movies to life absolutely it's always good to put some meat on the bones when it comes to these interviews and i'm glad we did it but cam i think we have quite the announcement for uh, our guest next week Yes, we are going to be talking to Denise Richards about her work as Dr. Christmas Jones in The World Is Not Enough. This is going to be a momentous interview. That's right, guys. We are so excited to share this one with you. Denise was so generous with her time and really helps us paint the picture of 1999's The World Is Not Enough. So I'm very proud to say the next sentence. Your mission should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we talk to Denise Richards. Boom.
And if you like what you heard on this review, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, just be thankful you're not the lorry driver outside of Daniel Craig's rehearsal space. Thank <laughs> you.